Okay, we're going. Okay. This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with conservation specialists relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Joe Scalia, holds a Doctor of uh, Psychoanalysis degree in Psychoanalysis Society and Culture. He maintains a private practice of psychoanalysis in Livingston, Montana. Dr. Scalia is president of the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance and a former president of Montana Wilderness Association. His environmental criticism and conservation writings and interviews have appeared regularly in Counterpunch, Mountain Journal, numerous Montana newspapers, wilderness podcasts, and Rendering Unconscious. So welcome, Joe. It's great to be talking to you today, and uh, I think we'll just dive right in. You're a psychoanalyst and a self-described social critic who advocates for untrammeled wilderness. Uh, so I, I thought I'd just ask you, are these interests compartmentalized, or is there a relationship between them? Right, right. It's a great question. And, Jay, thanks for having me on. You bet. I'm really glad to be here. Um, yeah, they they are, um, I would say, intellectually and also, if you will, existentially linked. Um, so... You know, I I think that well, as as Aldo Leopold said, um, both philosophy and religion had failed to consider the importance of humanity's relationship to the earth. And I would add, I would add, in fact, he, he very explicitly says that. And um, and I would add that psychoanalysis too has has neglected to do that. And I, amongst other aims, uh, hope to uh, remedy that neglect. Um, I, so I think that I think that a relationship to wild land, um, not only just ecologically. I mean, not only as Leopold pointed out, do we need a healthy planet in order to survive? Period. But I think psychologically. Part of who we are is wild. Uh-huh. That is that is to to live a meaningful and mature life, and I think that idea of maturity will will come back to. Uh, really requires a, a certain kind of aesthetics, uh-huh. and and if you attain a certain level of maturity that inheres um, an appreciation of aesthetics, um, which could be divided into the beautiful and the sublime, uh, wilderness having attributes of both, obviously, um, then you can, if you have that mature, uh, mature aesthetics, you also are a mature human being. So the how two do you cannot be separated from each other? So how do you encourage that um what you call mature aesthetic 
uh, I mean, so so much of the population does not consider these kinds of uh, environmental issues to be of high priority. Yes, yes. Well, we're diving right in here. That's, this is great. Uh, uh, so, yeah, there are a variety of ways I, I, I could enter into answering that question. I'll, I'll do it this way. Um, yeah, humanity itself needs to do a lot of growing up. Um, a, a good friend of mine and a, a world-renowned psychoanalyst um, has been writing and lecturing lately about this, and he is one of the rare psychoanalysts who is trying to bring um, in contemporary psychoanalysis back into, like there was some some decades ago, a, a, a critical commentary on society. Um, and, and he talks about the immaturity of society. Uh-huh. And Christopher Bolas is who I'm talking about. And I'll come back to that. He talked about disturbed group processes. Okay. Um, and, I, and I think that's going on in, in the environmental movement. And it doesn't mean the people who are involved in a disturbed group process are themselves psychologically disturbed, but that they get caught up in a group dynamic. Um, so, again, we'll come back to that. But this maturity okay. question. Um, I think the conservation movement has failed lately, and that, that is in the last couple of decades, in trying to speak to society about the importance of conservation, trying to actually transform society. I mean, this is part of what Aldo Leopold's work was. He was very clear that society needed to transform. He's, again, explicit about it if one reads him with any amount of closeness at all. And it's also what the early conservationists were about. And and the environmental movement today, including Montana Wilderness Association, the Wilderness Society, Greater Yellowstone Coalition, who are all part of the Gallatin Forest Partnership, mm-hmm. uh, which has ceded crucial wilderness lands to the recreation industry. We'll come back to that. I think. Right, right. Um, ha- they have they have just accepted the the state of society and are working kind of in concert with it, as though you can protect the land without having society mature, as though you can have a society that doesn't appreciate what is involved in protecting the earth um, and somehow still get that society to protect the earth by any manner of maneuvers, bargainings, machinations, what have you. And it's just very obviously failed thinking, but but I really don't think they see it as failed thinking. I think they are sincere. I think they are, again, caught in a group dynamic that they don't recognize. So let's, let's back up a little bit. And uh, from your perspective, what is the importance, what's the scope of the environmental problem that confronts us today? And uh, in, a, in a relative sense, uh, 
How does it rate among all the many issues that are confronting us? Yeah, thanks again, Jay. Your questions are awesome. Um, so, yeah, let, let's let's start large and global, and then hone in regionally. Um, you know, you hear if you hear it at all in major media. Um, what you hear about environmental concern is global warming or climate change, and you don't hear more broadly speaking an environmental collapse as a threat. And really, that's what we ought to be hearing, and it entails, entails many things. Clearly, global warming is one of them, um, as we're as painfully seeing right now with <laughs> one and a half times the size of Yellowstone National Park having burned in California this year already. Right. Um, uh, but, you know, we've got ocean acidification, we've got deforestation, uh, we've, which even goes under the guise now of, of promoting resilient forests or, or healthy forests or rest, rec, restoration forestry, which is uh, really problematic uh, conceptually, uh, but um, yeah, uh, we've got massive pollution. We've got incredible species losses going on across the planet, and all of these things and more um, are collectively making the Earth very quickly uninhabitable for for humanity. So, I mean, we're destroying our planet. And, and I, I, that is not a hyperbolic statement. If one really hears the statement and takes it in and sits with it and knows what it means, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. It, it causes great grief. It causes great worry. It's like, is it possible to turn this ship or are we done? Um, but we may have a chance, including in the last best place, including in Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, we may have a chance to turn the, the, the conservation community, which right now is too much ceding to politics and economics and not to ecological concerns. This, again, I will invoke Leopold, although Leopold talked about in his land ethic that the conservation movement can not make that exact mistake. Those three considerations, ecological, political, and economic, cannot be out of whack the way that they were then when in the problems he was addressing and the, the way that they are now out of whack. So, so, yeah, I think these concerns affect the future of humanity very, very directly. I think just it's not it's not in the public discourse. It's not in every the everyday language and and ideas to think about and talk about that exist in in everyday society. And I, that's I, it's a it's a tragic omission. So you talk about a holistic view of conservation ethics. I wonder if you can expand on that. Uh, yeah, ask, ask me a, a little differently, though, please, or elaborate your question. 
Well, uh, I'm 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 wondering about uh, how how we can develop conservation ethic that will be more widely or popularly cons- uh, uh, embraced. Uh, okay. Yeah, I get it. So, um, I'm thinking two things very much here that are competing for my attention for what I want to we can say edit first out the, We can edit out the pauses. Okay. Um, so, I think that if you took those three environmental groups I mentioned already, MWA, TWS, and GYC, and uh, and just had them alter how they are going about business. If they decided, and through all of their tremendous staff and financial resources into a change in what they're doing, into um, educating the public, like the way um, the cultural critic uh, Henry Giraud says, uh, I, I love this by him, he says that activism needs to be loud, educative, disruptive, noisy, systemic, and ongoing. And if if those three big Montana Greens did that and went about raising consciousness about our ecological future, about all the things I've said so far about our future and the earth, and and the importance of wilderness and a conservation aesthetic and a land ethic, um, I, I think they could change things right. like in a in a dramatic in a in a dramatic way. Um, they have tremendous resources. I mean, what they've done to promote the carving up of the High Lake Porcupine Buffalo Horn Wilderness Study Area had they put the same effort into preserving that wilderness study area and getting it into wilderness, I think we'd have it as wilderness. But I, but I think it is a big job, though, what I'm saying. I'm saying I think that could succeed, but I, I shouldn't be, you know, <laughs> too quick with that. That is, we are up against... Um, a society, a system, a system that promotes consumptive consumerism, that promotes the idea of we can consume, 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 and and there is no limit. Everything will be okay. We can make it work, and that that is the way to have a meaningful life. Therein lies happiness, and so. You see bonsai kind of mountain biking community, like like let's make the porcupine and buffalo horn drainages a mountain biking mecca. And that's what's about to happen, it looks like, if we don't turn this ship. The porcupine will, which is just right outside of Big Sky, is going to just be chock full of mountain bikes. Right. Um, and... and People are going to come from all over the West to 
to ride their mountain bikes in there. So and you're, that's you're a let, let me just add br- briefly that that's prime grizzly bear habitat and uh, a major elk herd um, winter and birthing grounds, and it's not going to be those things if this happens. So in your notes to me, you uh, you uh, describe the industrial scale recreation movement. Uh, and that it is insensitive to uh, wildlife concerns. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And even while it sometimes says we're taking care of wildlife. So there is a kind of a, a an appropriation, a misappropriation of language that goes on, a kind of a perversion of language that goes on. Um, kind of like the Trump administration does with language, um, maybe not so bombastically as he does, but the environment, the dominant environmental community is guilty of this also, saying we are protecting wildlife when what they're doing is quite the opposite. They're carving up the last remaining wildlands and divvying up um, what wildlife needs to not have divvied up anymore. And, and, and partly this is because they're um, allying themselves with um, what has become a strong um, political force, the mountain biking community of all things. Right. It's like 20 years ago, you couldn't have thought like a statement like the mountain biking community is going to be a strong political force. People would have just laughed like, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? But that's what's happened. And um and I think, uh, yeah, I just think that needs to be addressed. There's they, those folks, while they're saying they're gonna, they're protecting wildlife, they aren't seeing that they're invading the home of wildlife and what should have a, a sort of, a, a, an attitude given it of, you know, the quietude with which one experiences the inside of a cathedral. That's what should be given to the wilderness it, it is hardly what's happening there. Instead, it's like it's like riding your mountain bike full speed through the cathedral and right. yelling with with joy at, at how you just turned that corner and didn't crash and you're flying down this hill at 25 miles an hour. You know, it's like that's that's not that's not a conservation aesthetic. So in this era of of this Trump era when motorcyclists go into uh, Sturgis without any masks on, insensitive to the possibility of contracting the virus, and when uh, bikers uh, invade wilderness, uh, there's, there's just great insensitivity. Uh, do you see any way for turning that around and making people responsive to what even is in their own interest, long-term interest. Yeah, yeah, Jay. Again, I, I do. Um, so, you know, there, there are two sort of psychoanalytic threads here that, that need to be addressed, I think. And they both fall under the rubric of that basically – human beings need to grow up, need to mature, but are as individuals, but also as groups. 
Um, and so there is on the one hand, I, I will introduce one technical psychoanalytic term at the very least, and it's, it's, it's a French word, jouissance, translated literally means the best translation we have, and it's inadequate, is, is enjoyment. Um, but what it means in, in psychoanalytic terminology and concepts is, um, uh, actually, it, it has m multiple meanings or deployments, but, but primarily and for my usage here, it means um, a kind of an insistence on constantly available satisfaction, which I've already alluded to, but now I'm giving it its term, jouissance. And, and, and part of growing up is coming to terms with the fact that um, to live a meaningful and constructive and non-destructive life, we cannot indulge jouissance. We've got to outgrow that. We've got to come to bear and be generative with what you could call in more non-technical language the inherent trauma of being human. And there is that. There is just an inherent trauma in being human. There is and there is an insatiable longing that we must not only bear but but develop a creative relationship to. And which by the way links back to a conservation aesthetic. You you've got to those those are inextricable from one another. But but right now there's this insistence on no, there's no lack. I don't have to limit myself. I can just go, go, go. And so the environmental movement has got to deal with this. It has got to deal with the fact that limits are even more required now as we're expanding the human population to frighteningly large numbers. Um, the environmental movement, the conservation movement has to step up and say, you know, we really can't live like by continuing to carve up the land and, and continuing to grow the population soon. We'll have in how many decades will we have 11 billion and 13 billion people? And and how many of those are going to converge on the greater Yellowstone ecosystem? Um, right. We've got to draw a line in the sand and say no more. So so they've got to be able to do that. So what I'm talking about to come back to to your question is, you know, how the heck can you do these things? Those people in the major groups have got to find the courage to face themselves, their mistakes, and to stand up inside their groups and say, you know, we've got to, we've got to turn this ship. So look, I was president of Montana Wilderness Association, 06 and 08. And at the time, we were starting to talk about collaborate and compromise. And which is the model that, that the Gallon and Forest Partnership used to, um, to broker this, this compromise with um, other so-called user groups, self-interest groups. Um, in the Gallatin region, in the forest plan for the, for the Gallatins, yeah. Yes, and the Custer, and, and, and the Madisons especially also. Okay. Um, and um but yeah 
the the real so two things happen so they they agreed they're gonna they're gonna give away of the 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 um wilderness study area in the gallatins they're gonna they're gonna see the most important wildlife part of that area to um non wilderness uses and they call it a wildlife management area and they want to say that that somehow will protect the wildlife um it it won't um it because it does allow this you know development of um a mountain biking mecca there um and continued usage of motorized recreation as well um and but what's happened is the forest service and the the partnership the gallon and forest partnership i think was quite convinced the forest service would accept its proposal the forest service didn't even accept the the less than standard wilderness protections for the porcupine and buffalo horn drainages of the WSA again the most wildlife crucial part of the WSA these two incredible lower elevation valleys mm-hmm. um um they they went for the rock and ice wilderness basically um and but then the forest service even gave less protection than the wildlife management area would have and are calling it a back country area Mary Erickson, the supervisor of the forest here, the Custer Gallon and National Forest, I just heard her in an interview talking about the backcountry area as though it's this cool new idea. And it was really painful to listen to. Um, I even felt a little sympathy for her trying to present this as a good thing, because really all it is is that it allows them to do pretty much anything in there that they do anywhere to the forest. Um, it's, it's virtually no protection and it's whatever the existing forest supervisor thinks should happen. So, so that's what's going on right now. They haven't come out with their final plan. This is their draft plan, um, the forest service. But, but what also happened is the, the forest partnership, Gallon Forest Partnership thought that the Lionhead area of the Madisons, the, southern reaches of the Madison Range, which also has some incredible, um, like, massive meadow country and beautiful wildlife um, habitat, is going to become a recreation emphasis area. So not only allowing mountain biking, but encouraging mountain biking um, by the Forest Service. It's it's really rather phenomenal. So that's also happened with this, um, with where the forest, the, the Gallatin, the Custer Gallatin National Forest Service is at right now. So, this so the Gallatin Forest, go ahead, you go ahead. This was an example of compromised thinking uh, that you're a critic of. Uh, so can you talk about yes. compromise? Go, go ahead, Jay. Compromised thinking? Yeah. Yeah. So, gosh. So, how to go about talking about that? So, when what are you thinking already that I mean by compromise thinking? What do you have in mind? 
well, I assume you mean that uh, uh, people are willing to uh, to look for compromises rather than to to hold out for what's really important, which is uh, taking the hard steps that are needed in order to ensure a viable future. Thank you. <laughs> you said it really well. That's that's exactly right. And and so you know you know that gets us to then some of another psychoanalytic consideration. Um and that's group dynamics. And so what what we're looking at is uh, a failure to protect this northern reach of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem um, in a manner that that pushes against further species loss, that that fights hard for um, for the ecological integrity and and biodiversity, wildlife integrity. Um, of of this part this northern part of the greater yellowstone ecosystem um we're looking at the loss of that and that is yet more contribution to environmental collapse across the planet but even if you don't look at that larger picture and look at that it's turning montana into another utah or colorado Another part of the New West that is just characterized by further um, in, incursion by by the endless growth of neoliberal capitalism and the the major beneficiaries of of that capitalistic of that version of capitalism that we've been living in since roughly 1980. Um, that uh, we're going to see that that that's what's happening here, oh. and 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 these groups are allowing that to happen, and they aren't looking at what is right before their eyes, and that is that is compromise thinking. It's what my friend Christopher Bolas calls negative hallucination, oh. not seeing what's right in front of your face. And that is part of a psychopathological group process. It does not mean the individuals in those groups are are pathological in that way, but it does mean they're caught in a group process that has compromised their thinking. Joe, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but uh, we're going to continue this conversation next week. So our guest today has been psychoanalyst Joseph Scalia, president of Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to our website and just search for Wilderness and Wildlife or go to jswilderness5.net or to kgvm.org and scroll down to Wilderness and Wildlife. Thanks for listening. I'm your your host, Jay Shell. Okay, Joe. Uh, uh, I'm just going to start again, and uh, we'll we'll edit out the interruption. I'm going to 
I'm going to deal with uh, NGOs now. Okay. Okay. Well, you know what? Can we can we say a little more about what we started into just now? Sure. I'll ask you about compromise okay. thinking. Okay. All right. Here here goes again. This is Wilderness and Wildlife presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with conservation specialists relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest again today is Joseph Scalia. He holds a Doctor of Psychoanalysis degree in Psychoanalysis, Society, and Culture. He maintains a private practice of psychoanalysis in Livingston, Montana. Dr. Scalia is president of the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance and a former president and a former president of Montana Wilderness Association. His environmental criticism and conservation writings and interviews have appeared regularly in Counterpunch, Mountain Journal, numerous Montana newspapers, wilderness, podcast, and rendering unconscious. So welcome, Joe. Uh, glad we're able to talk again. want to continue our conversation from uh, last week. Uh, and we were talking about compromised thinking. So can you pick it up right there and uh, we'll start in? Yeah, I sure can, Jay. Thank you. And thanks for that introduction. Um, you know, you remind me, too, that I didn't finish saying a thing about this. Um, uh in our last meeting, which is when I was president of, of MWA, we, we had begun this collaborating compromise um, idea. And, and I've had to, um, since then, face that I was wrong and that our, my organization was wrong and that I had a hand, a big hand, because I was president, for God's sake, right? Really? Um, I, I had a big hand, even though I had no understanding of what I was doing. Um, I had a big hand in making that come to pass within Montana Wilderness Association. Uh-huh. And it has adopted it um, like full bore since then. Um, and it's done it uncritically, non-critically, as in not critically analyzing what it's doing and what its effects are. But so for me, you know, I had to come to the painful realization that I erred in um, a way that has contributed who knows how significantly, uh, who knows how it could have been different had I been wiser then um, uh, that you know I, I helped cause this problem and that's painful I that's you know I have remorse about that and so that's what my colleagues quote on the other side of the aisle have to do too is face up to that so um, the, there's a this is the collaborate yeah. and compromise model that uh, that wants to achieve agreement rather than uh, uh, hold out for uh, uh, and it, uh, strength of the ethic. Is that correct? 
That that is correct. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and so I do think, um, I, I I think that there is this this place of uh, negative hallucination going on here. It's uh-huh. like I'm not gonna see. I'm not going to see how dire the situation is. It's like, no, the situation is not dire. It can all work out fine. Um, right. And, and a, a kind of a, 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 a delusion gets built that, um, that we're going to, we're going to take care of things. I mean, it's a delusion of grandeur, really, we we will take care of things. We've got the problem solved. We've quote rolled up our sleeves and gotten at the table with traditional opponents and who are our neighbors after all, even though they think differently than us. And by God, we've we've found a way to live together. And you know that's lovely if it were true, but. It's not. Yeah, they're living together, but they're living together in a shared negative hallucination. And that's and and that has yielded this this delusional thinking. So this is and I again go ahead. This is your criticism of uh mainstream NGOs that uh they are they are willing to compromise, but uh they're caught in a bind, aren't they? Because uh, they are able to wield a lot more political uh, clout than the smaller organizations, uh, such as yours and the Gallatin Wildlife Association. Uh, and and in order to wield that political clout, they have to have a large number of uh, of members, and they need funding in order to maintain that large group of members. And uh, so they go to. Uh, uh, corporate-funded foundations in order to uh, get it, and that that involves their necessity to compromise. I see that as a, a catch-22 problem. You know, I I understand what you're saying. Um, I and I know the the budget of Montana Wilderness Association grew a great deal when I was there. Uh-huh. Um, I was on I was on the council for seven years, and the, the board of directors. It was then called the state council, um, and um, and it has continued to grow. I don't know what it is now, but I think it's about six times what it was when I first came on the state council. And um, so, yeah, they've grown really dependent on that, and. And they are in a bind with that. But on the other hand, um, that does not preclude their taking an ethical position. And I, so, so I should, I should, I should say though, I believe they think they are behaving ethically. Right. Um, but clearly it's what ethics, you know, it's not a Leopoldian land ethic by any stretch of the imagination. It's mm-hmm. not an ethic that appreciates the interdependence of all members of the biotic community. Um, it, it clearly is not that. And that, again, is what they have managed to negatively hallucinate. So I, I think that it is, I 
I think that they would have to find their way to survive financially or or find new paths in life, but to take the most responsible citizen, human citizen, you know, citizen of the world, citizen of the planet position and do the right thing by all creatures, uh, all humans, all creatures, all non-human creatures, all human creatures, um, and and all of the planet, flora and fauna and rock and ice and water mm-hmm. and air and um, and and live with the consequences. So you talked in your notes about abandoning the public voice uh, and mm-hmm. how do you how do you determine what that public voice is? So in a couple of ways. One, I mean, there's a University of Montana survey um, that has been taken, I don't know, for how many years. Mm-hmm. Um, but it shows a tremendous support for more wilderness. Um, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but they're really rather staggering majority mm-hmm. of Montanans want more wilderness. <laughs> and I and I just, I don't think it would take much at all um, to to get that um, into the public eye, to get that into the public discourse, to get that into newspapers, into not just guest opinions and letters to the editor, but but into you know what columnists employed by the papers or writing about. And I I, I just think it would not be that big a deal to turn the ship. So. Because so many people do support wilderness and and they do not understand, Jay, and this is another thing that I'm very critical of these three big Montana Greens for. The citizenry of Montana does not understand that these three big Greens are not taking care of the wilderness. The three big Greens have done a, a, a remarkable PR job of of making the public think they are taking care of it and of, of presenting to its their memberships that they're taking care of it. But when I have talked with, um, with some of their members, including um, some major donors um, and, and, and some big name donors, so I won't name them because it's, I don't have their permission to do so, um, but I um, haven't even thought about asking for it. I don't think they would want it out there because this is so politically touchy and so touchy with who are my neighbors. And I, and I want to come back to that, actually. But um, but uh, yeah, I've spoken with some of their donors, just, you know, a few Mm-hmm. Who who have been very disturbed? Like I didn't know this. Well, why didn't I know this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I think I think it would not be a very hard ship to turn if the staff and boards of these organizations wanted to turn the ship. I think that's where the responsibility lies. I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, um, uh, so 
So the, 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 the there's an education and persuasion uh, problem that uh, these organizations have not really faced up to. Isn't that isn't that a problem? Isn't that yeah? Yes, yes, and I and I think it's now become fueled by a very um, dangerous um, group process. A dis group process. So I've already talked about negative hallucination and delusional thinking. But what happens when you have um, um, what really amounts to a, a psychotic group process? And again, let me be perfectly clear. I was part of this also, and I'm not calling myself psychotic. <laughs> and I'm not calling members of this psychotic, but but what you see going on with what you saw go on in Nazi Germany for people who supported yeah. what Hitler was doing, and what that that was psychotic. That was not, but all people supporting that are not were not psychotic. Just like all Trump base is not psychotic. Just you know, again, so this is. There is a distinction between a group psychotic process and an individual psychosis. I'll even footnote that psychosis itself is is much maligned in our culture, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, and it and it and to the detriment uh, of of society, actually. But um, but what happens in in psychosis as it goes along over time, if it's not treated. Um, successfully, mm-hmm. and it can be treated successfully psychoanalytically, mm-hmm. both individually and on a group level. Um, so this, so these groups can transform themselves. Um, but if they don't, if as long as they continue on the hallucinatory and delusional path, what happens is over time they become more grandiose and more convinced of their their correctness the absolute rightness of what they're doing and and they become manic and megalomaniacal about it and we are seeing that happen with montana wilderness association now so now that they've done this with the highlight porcupine buffalo horn wilderness study area they are proposing that they do that with all remaining um forest service um, WSAs, wilderness study areas in the state of Montana. So because they're saying we've been so successful in the Gallatin that now we want to transfer this success to the whole rest of the state. Wow. And so this is, this is megalomania and mania that we're seeing. This is disturbed thinking. I'm not even so compromised thinking is even really too mild. And again, I let me, let me try to be. Um, clear. I am not maligning these people. I do believe they believe in what they're doing, uh-huh. but I think they are wrong, and I think they are capable of recognizing they're wrong. Yeah, and I think we are just, just. I think we just need to ahead. clarify that uh, those changes, any change in those state in the status, needs to be accomplished by Congress. This is just Forest Service planning. And it has it takes congressional action to for any of those changes to be made. So uh, if we uh, get a more friendly Congress, it, 
uh, it might be uh, might be swing around in in our favor. You know, I hope so. I hope so, but I do think that um, it still requires these three Montana big greens to turn their ships. And and because I think they're going to have a lot of sway with the congressional delegation, even if it becomes uh, an all blue congressional delegation from Mm -hmm. Montana. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Well, I'd like to change uh, our subject for uh, slightly. Uh, Yeah. I was recently interviewing uh, Dr. Bill Mamo Mumwa uh, of Tufts University. Uh, an emeritus professor who's done research about the role of forests in carbon sequestration. And he was emphasizing the importance of the forests in the West because of the size of the trees. And you're a critic of indiscriminate logging under the guise of restorative logging. Uh, talk about that. What's restorative logging mean? Yeah, you know, and I I think you maybe have interviewed George Worsner before. Yeah, I did. Um, and okay, and George can speak to this for more um, um, in, uh, data-driven than I can. But I can give you the um, the outline of it. Um, and it, basically, what's happened is. Well, it's a few things, I, I guess. Um, but in order to keep logging, um, there's been a, a kind of perversion of language that has happened. Um, that So we're now calling um, log, it's like there are different logging, loggings now that go on. It's like, oh, we can clear cut or we can res- we can do restoration logging and um and i think these may sometimes blur into each other also but mm-hmm. there's this idea essentially that that um that we should protect the forest by going in and doing certain kinds of logging that this will make the forest healthier in a variety of ways including reducing forest fires well actually um, botanists really have given the lie, shown the lie to to that kind of thinking, and um, yet, yet, so I mean, the science does not support this idea. It's a political idea that allows for more logging, and um, and so it's really industry driven, and and it also allows. For this idea of um, we can continue to consume indiscriminately um, wherever we want to consume and we can make it work. We can balance everyone's consumption wishes and it will work. And so it's really just a new rationalization to, to continue on this you know, endless growth, endless consumption right, right. path that we're that we're on. There was a great there was a great Freakonomics uh, episode out recently on on uh, endless growth. By the way, was told to me uh, by by a, a really I would say pretty hardcore Republican um, who's a um, an analyst of mine, 
And he loved the piece. He was like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was addressing the folly of, of neoliberal capitalism's endless consumption and how it is destroying the earth. And this is a man who's, you know, grown up in Montana and um, is a, I don't know, fourth generation Montanan. And he, uh, and again, you know, very much a Republican and he got it. I mean, it's really not rocket science but but the republican party is driving this and sadly so is the democratic party it is not just the republican party so uh let's talk about the wilderness study act of 1977 uh you refer to it in your notes to me uh what is what did that act envision for them for the mountain ranges of the west Right. You know, I, and I've, since you asked me that in, in your notes back to me, um, I, I, I started to do a little research on it and couldn't get my question answered yet. So it's kind of interesting. And I, and I, you know, reached out to some people who I thought would know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can tell you what I do know, and I can tell you what I don't know, um, <laughs> that I tried to get answered. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I don't know is um, is how the crafters of that act um, envisioned uh, the resolution of uh, the, the future of, of, of those wilderness study areas. Like, what, so the idea was we'll put them into wilderness study areas now. So this was 13 years after the Wilderness Act was passed, uh-huh. and which was 64. And then in 77, these lands were set aside to be considered for wilderness. And while they're not, and while it's not determined whether they will be wilderness, you know, legislated as such or not, <clears throat> um, uh, we'll we'll keep them in uh, the wilderness character that they had at the passage of the act. So um, we won't let use non-conforming wilderness wilderness non-conforming uses occur um, past the point they existed in 1977. So there were not mountain bikes in wilderness study areas in 1977. There was very little um, motorized recreation in 1977. The, degree, the, the, the power and speed of those machines was much less in 1977. Um, and so the Forest Service was charged with um, not allowing any more interruption of wilderness quality as defined by the 1964 Wilderness Act, than existed in 77, and and so that that's part of the idea of it. How that was going to ever be resolved, whether it was thought by the crafters of the act that some of it would be wilderness and some of it would be not, and how that would would be determined, I I don't know. And what's the effect of uh, mountain bikes and snowmobiles? as they intrude into some of these areas that are fairly pristine. Right. So, so 
so just so I'll start with with motorized, then I'll go to mechanized. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've become more powerful, like way more powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I and the, you know the whole idea of rolling up your sleeves and sitting down with your neighbors who you have opposing ideologies with, like like I, I, I've done that really hardcore. I mean, I've even like done that with a white supremacist who I think vandalized a building that my psychoanalytic institute at the time occupied. Um, and um, I've done it with, with uh, Carrie White and Mark Hoffman of the, of the citizens for balanced use who, mm. who were, who were really anti-wilderness. And I've sat down and drunk beers with them, had dinner with them. Um, I even went dirt bike riding with them. So I've rolled up my sleeves. But I profoundly disagree with them and don't think that we're going to agree. And and I don't and I don't think we should pretend otherwise. But but so I know Mark Hoffman, Mark produced like incredible snowmobiles, um, uh, high high tech, high end snowmobiles for a long time. And now he's gone over to. to uh, making, I don't even know what he calls them, but and I, I've never seen one, so I don't quite get it. But it's like a, it's like a snowmobile that's a combination, um, uh, like motorcycle with skis. So, so it's it it's more capable of navigating terrain um, quickly and through tight corners. And 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 light and and with less physical effort by the rider because they weigh so much less than snowmobiles, and so they can. And so Mark has his business right. Mark Hoffman, this is Crazy Mountain Motorsports, right at the foot of the Crazy Mountains, and mm. and Mark has now been able to penetrate into the crazies way more than he had even before with uh-huh. his already high-end snowmobiles. So yeah. the technology has gotten to where um, there's less and less place for wilderness to exist. So, and, and so the same thing's happening with, with mountain bikes. Um, they're becoming ever more able with the same amount of effort by humans to go faster, to go farther, and now they're even going to electronic bikes, and so right. and the technology of the e-bikes right. um, is is getting higher, and they're becoming closer and closer to the power of motorbikes, which also have gotten more powerful and easier to maneuver, right? So, and then you you put you then you add to that the incredible exponential increase of humans using those things mm-hmm. and you right you see the picture the uh, for the future of, of wilderness so are you more concerned about the invasion of a pristine environment or the effect on the wildlife yeah that's really a good question um so yeah that's a really really good question I don't know that I can that I can say I'm concerned about one more than the other, uh-huh. and in a way they're inextricable from the other, but they are also different. Um, in fairness to the the I think intent and spirit of your question, um, 
So very much I am concerned for the wildlife, both on a moral level. I mean, I, I think we have a moral obligation to, to wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I love, um, at least I know, I don't know how 